The British Isles are an ancient land where untouched countryside meets sprawling cities. Through thousands of years, blood and tragedy have seeped into its fertile soil, from war and invasion to crimes of passion and insanity. These events have left deep echoes in certain places on these islands, places that we will discover together. Each month, we will explore the most haunted places and terrifying legends in each of Britain's counties. So come and join me below in our Eerie Isles. Our first episode brings us to Staffordshire in the Midlands of England. The region is best known for its wild hilly moorlands in the north and south of the county, as well as many coal fields that supported the country during the Industrial Revolution. The British pottery industry found its home in Stoke-on-Trent, while other areas such as Burton-upon-Trent and Stafford became famous in the brewing and shoemaking industries respectively. In more modern times, companies such as JCB, Bet365 and one of the UK's premier theme parks, Alton Towers, make their home in this county, where old industrial sprawl meets rural beauty. We begin our journey through Staffordshire with the tale of how a woman called Margaret Lee from Burslem Stoke-on-Trent, who was born in roughly 1685, became better known to history as Molly Lee, the Witch of Burslem. Molly Lee is most remembered for her conspicuous lifestyle. Her bizarre actions led her to being labelled a witch. From birth, Molly was unusual. Stories tell that she could eat solid food from only a few days old, and her appearance was quite unique. Her eye defect helped spread her story far and wide in Burslem. In the 17th century, people were discriminated on how they looked, so unfortunately, anyone different like Molly Lee was labelled an outcast. As she was growing up, Molly was a difficult child that roamed on her own. Due to being rejected by the villagers, she was shunned to an isolated part of Burslem, away from the town, but rumours about her cottage still spread. Her never-blossoming hawthorn bush added more suspicion on whether she was a witch. As well as that, her raven was said to terrorise the village. One famous story includes her raven circling the local bar, the Turk's Head. Following the appearance of the raven, all the beer in the pub turned sour, much to the upset of one villager. That particular villager was Reverend Spencer, the very person that accused Molly of being a witch in the first place, due to the fact that she failed to visit the church on a regular basis, an uncommon act to do at the time. But the hatred may be due to the fact that Molly accused the Reverend of being a drunk. This enmity may be the reason that the whole village turned against her. Although Molly was accused of being a witch, after her death, Reverend Spencer still buried her in the churchyard of St. John's Church. No witch would ever be buried in a holy place and Molly's story gets even more intriguing after her death. As legend goes, Molly's raven began to terrorise the locals. The villagers came to the assumption that Molly's soul had been implanted into her only companion, her bird. Furthermore, several drunken villagers visited the cottage after her death, and to their surprise, they saw Molly sitting on her rocking chair. Was it the effect of the drink playing on their mind, or did they really see Molly's ghost? To put the villagers' mind to rest, one final task was performed 
to put Molly Lee's soul to rest. A unique procedure, only ever performed on Molly Lee. Her tomb was opened by Reverend Spencer, and she was reburied in the opposite direction, and re-entombed with her raven that was still alive. Molly Lee was laid to rest in peace, yet her story continues today. The people of Stoke circle her tomb every Halloween, chanting, Molly Lee, Molly Lee, you can't catch me, in the hopes of raising her spirits and being chased around the graveyard. Whether Molly was a witch or not is unknown, but her presence has definitely imprinted into the history of Stoke-on-Trent, a true legend. As we move on to our next tale from Staffordshire, we do not have to go far, as in the centre of Burslem we find the Leopard Inn. Open since the mid-1700s, the Leopard has been a linchpin in the history of the potteries. In fact, it was here that local industrialist and potter extraordinaire Josiah Wedgwood met with James Brindley in 1765 to discuss the building of the Trenton Mersey Canal that was a key component of Britain's Industrial Revolution. Over the years, the Leopard changed both hands and names, and in 1878, the inn was expanded into a full Victorian hotel. Sadly, as all things must come to an end, so did the Leopard's career as a premier hotel, and in 1956, the rooms were closed to the public and left to rot. The Leopard's modern fame now comes from the numerous ghosts that are said to haunt the property. In the cellar of the building, the restless spirit of Molly Lee is supposed to wander, as legend tells she was incarcerated here after her arrest for witchcraft. It has also been reported that the ghost of a small girl makes her home in the large dining room at the back of the pub. In fact, one night, when a local band was setting up to play a gig, they got a fright, as the full apparition of the girl ran across the room, only to disappear through a solid wall. The band was so shaken by their encounter that they packed up and left, without playing a single song. The abandoned hotel rooms on the upper floor of the property have the most activity, however. The spirit of a young prostitute who was brutally murdered by a not-so-gentleman haunts the hotel room in which she passed on the top floor, forever trapped in pain and misery, leading to strong feelings of sadness and entrapment in those sensitive to her. The most malicious entity seems to be a tall man, often seen wandering the upper floors, and has on one occasion thrown a large bronze horse ornament across the living room during a seance. Could this be the restless spirit of the poor woman's murderer, condemned to pace the abandoned corridors where his vile crime occurred? We head now to the Staffordshire Moorlands, and in particular the beautiful village of Alton. On a still day, you can hear the screams of many people on the wind, and great unearthly roars. However, these are just the sounds of one of Britain's biggest and best amusement parks, Alton Towers. Originally the home of the Talbot family, the ruins and estate grounds play host to thousands of thrill-seekers during the day and a score of spirits during the night. During the 1930s, when the Talbots still owned the property, one of their estate workers came to complain about a ghost on the property. The estate worker was walking back from the train station one summer evening. The way back to the mansion was by the way of what was known as the Step Walk, a path which winds upwards through the heavily wooded part of the grounds and contains 18 flights of steps. 
The estate worker had walked this path many times before, and as he approached the final set of steps, he noticed a stranger standing at the top of them. The stranger started to come down the steps towards him. The gent's elegant clothing and shiny shoes seemed oddly out of place. The man was wearing a top hat and a long black flowing cape. A white scarf was hung around his neck, and he carried a black silver-topped walking cane. As the figure drew level, the estate worker tilted his cap with a courteous goodnight, sir. As soon as he had uttered the words, the figure vanished in front of him. The worker was so scared, he ran all the way home. The next day he informed the foreman of what had happened. The foreman asked if he'd seen a black dog, and said that he had seen the ghostly figure on several occasions, but he was always accompanied by a black dog. Hex, The Legend of the Towers is an attraction designed by John Wardley at Alton Towers. It opened in the year 2000, and is situated in the original armory and picture gallery of the Gothic Mansion. The attraction is tied in with the curse at Alton Towers, and the walls around the ride document it, but more on the curse later. This area is known by staff as one of the most haunted on the estate, with regular poltergeist activity. Tools are moved during the night. Staff have had objects and stones violently thrown at them by an unseen entity, and guests queuing for the ride have seen ghostly children dressed in Victorian clothing that suddenly vanish. The ghost of a large man has been seen in and around the music room by members of staff. Loud, heavy footsteps have also been heard coming from the room, and upon investigation, the room is always empty. Other footsteps have been heard in the banqueting room, but in this instance, they are accompanied by a dark, shadowy figure. A ghost of a lady in a long black dress has been seen walking the corridors in the tower. Her presence is often accompanied by the strong smell of perfume. One member of staff believed her to be a guest who was still in the park after hours, and asked her to leave. The woman slowly faded away in front of him, much to the staff member's surprise. Now, while you may think that the story of Hex was made up by the designers at Alton Towers, it is in fact based on the local legend of the very real Chained Oak. The story goes that on an autumn night in 1821, the Earl of Shrewsbury was returning to his home, Alton Towers, when, mysteriously, an old woman appeared in the road. The coach stopped to find out why she was there, and the woman begged for the charity of a coin. The Earl cruelly dismissed her, so the old woman placed a curse on him. The woman croaked, For every branch on the old oak tree here that falls, a member of the Earl's family will die. The Earl dismissed them and carried on his way, but that night a storm brewed, and a single branch from the old oak tree broke and fell. Later that very same night, a member of the Earl's family suddenly and mysteriously died. The next day, the Earl ordered his servants to chain every branch together to prevent others from falling. The oak can still be visited to this day in the valley the park overlooks. The tree has been dated at over 1300 years old, and has grown over the chains binding it in place. The chains are hand-forged and believed to date from the 1800s. Also, this is the only documented case in the world of a tree being bound in such a way. In 2007, a major part of the tree fell from the trunk and crashed to the ground. The descendants of the Earl were informed. 
We move now from ancestral homes and ancient trees to ruined castles. One of Staffordshire's oldest and most haunted castles is that of Tutbury, which has stood since the time of the Norman conquest of Britain. Tutbury's spectral residence and their associated activities vary from blue sparking orbs that are witnessed floating around the room, to camera batteries and electronic equipment being drained of power, and even full-body apparitions. The ghostly figure of a man in a full suit of armour has been seen on many occasions. He's been seen outside of John of Gaunt's gateway, and on one occasion was heard shouting, Get thee hence! He was last seen around four years ago during the day by one of the visitors, who reported hearing him say, Get over the fence! Although reenactments are commonplace at Tutbury, it was pointed out to the visitor that none were scheduled for that day, so nobody would have been dressed like that. Could this have been the mysterious man in armour? There is also the ghost of a small girl, who appears to be between five and seven years old, known affectionately as Ellie. She mainly appears in the king's bedroom, and is known to tug on people's fingers, hold their hands, and even on occasion remove people's rings. The most famous of all ghosts at Tutbury is most certainly Mary, Queen of Scots. She despised Tutbury, as, during her incarceration there, it was often the prison she suffered worst of all in. In 2004, she was seen by 40 men, standing at the top of the South Tower peering down at them. She was dressed in a full white Elizabethan gown. When they saw her, the men laughed as they thought a member of staff had put on the dress as a joke. However, it was pointed out that nobody on staff had a white gown in that fashion, so it would have been impossible for the figure they had seen to be a member of staff. The men were profoundly disturbed by this experience, and what makes this a very important report is the fact that there were so many that saw her. In 1984, a serving marine saw her, walking at an unusually fast pace across the grass. There have been a number of sightings of Mary in recent years, particularly between quarter past ten and eleven o'clock. There's also been a figure dressed in black, seen looking through the window of the Great Hall, often by people leaving the castle in their cars. One summer she was seen by several senior members of staff, who were usually quick to brush off anything paranormal about the castle. And not only that, but that very summer, archaeologists who were taking part in an extensive five-year dig at the castle witnessed her as well. There are places in this world that seem to attract and exhibit paranormal activity more than anywhere else, places such as the Bridgewater Triangle and Skinwalker Ranch. Canic Chase is one of those places. Formerly a royal forest, and later mining area, Canic Chase is now an area of natural outstanding beauty, with mixed woodland and desolate heath covering the local hills. Located on the chase is a military cemetery, mainly for German and Austrian prisoners of war. Though local legend tell of a beast that roams through the gravestones and the nearby Pie Green Tower, a hideous and deformed part man, part pig creature, that has been reported and sighted since the 1940s in the area. According to local legend, this creepy monster originated when World War II had just recently ended, and British and American scientists joined allegiances to conduct a series of peculiar experiments. The tests went too far. They abducted a woman, hypnotised her, 
and then impregnated her with an artificial human-pig DNA seed in an attempt to create a creature to perform their tests upon. The scientists closely monitored the woman for ten months, and they finally determined that the horrible test had not worked. A year later, they were stunned to discover that her pregnancy was severely delayed. She bore a baby human, with the snout and face of a pig. Much later this creature retreated into the woods of Canic Chase to avoid the prejudice of man. For decades, people have since then reported seeing a tall man with the head of a pig roaming about the mysterious landscape. Over the years, the chase has also been the site of reports of UFO activity, Bigfoot-like creatures, and even in the late 2000s, there was a rash of werewolf sightings by members of the public driving through the area late at night. The chase's latest paranormal resident could have ties to a very real and tragic series of events. A black-eyed spirit of a young girl, who could well be the mournful ghost of a young victim of one of Britain's most depraved serial killers. In 1964, nine-year-old Julia Taylor was lured into a car by a stranger. The young girl was later found having been assaulted, strangled and left for dead on the side of the A34 road that passes through Canic Chase. Thankfully, she was spotted by a passing cyclist who saved her from death by exposure. Two years later, during a public search for Margaret Reynolds, who had gone missing on the way to school three months earlier, searchers uncovered the bodies of the six-year-old Reynolds and also five-year-old Diana Joy Tift in a ditch in an area of the chase known as Manstey Gully. On the 22nd of July 1967, a soldier who was a member of another search party found the sprawled body of seven-year-old Christine Darby beneath brushwood only a mile away from where Reynolds and Tift were discovered. Christine had been enticed into a car by a strange man near her home in Coldmoor, Warsaw, three days earlier. Witnesses in Warsaw explained they saw a man in a grey car who spoke in a local accent, while two others who had been on Canic Chase remembered seeing a grey Austin A55 or A60. As the hunt for the A34 murderer began in earnest, the manhunt that followed these horrific crimes was the largest in British history, eclipsing even the hunt for the Moores murderers, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. This was also the first time that a facial composite was used in British history. Though nobody came forward after the release of the image, once the criminal was apprehended, police commented on the uncanny likeness he had to the composite. On the 4th of November 1968, at Bridgman Street, in Walsall, a ten-year-old escaped from a man who attempted to force her into his green and white Ford Corsair. This incident was witnessed by an 18-year-old woman who made a mental note of the vehicle registration number, but unfortunately mixed up two of the numbers that she had remembered. The police played around with the numbers and located a record for a green and white Ford Corsair, which was registered to a Raymond Leslie Morris. Morris was arrested in connection with the attempted abduction. The police were aware that Morris, who had been interviewed four times in four years, had owned a grey Austin 55, similar to the one used in the abduction of Darby. He had been considered a suspect in Darby's death, but his wife provided him with an alibi by saying that the couple were shopping together the day she went missing. A police search of Morris's flat 
uncovered pornographic photographs of a young girl who was later determined to be his wife's five-year-old niece. Scotland Yard detectives arrested Raymond Morris for Darby's murder on 16th November 1968. Following his trial at Stafford Assizes, Raymond Leslie Morris was convicted of the murder of Christine Darby and sentenced to life in prison. He died of natural causes in 2014, having spent the last 45 years of his life behind bars. Constructed in 1595, the ancient high house is an Elizabethan townhouse located on Stafford's High Street and is the largest timber-framed townhouse in Britain. During the English Civil War, during the English Civil War, the house was being rented by a member of the Sneed family from nearby Keel Hall. The house's most famous visitor arrived in 1643, having just started the war against Oliver Cromwell and the Parliamentarian forces. He was King Charles I, who, along with his nephew Prince Rupert, made the High House his temporary headquarters until the town was seized by Cromwell's forces later that same year. Now, the ancient High House is a museum dedicated to the Victorian, Edwardian and Civil War eras, but is also famous for its spectral inhabitants, who, if you are lucky, you may encounter while browsing the exhibits. A young Victorian girl has been seen running around the rooms of the house, possibly looking for a playmate amongst the visitors. Additionally, on the upper floor, an old woman has been seen on several occasions, always sat, rocking gently, in her rocking chair. The most famous spirit is that of William Mason, a local businessman who in the 1890s used to own shops within the buildings. Mason was said to be very proud of the house, and in the 1960s, a party of American tourists were wandering the building when a man in Victorian dress offered to guide them around. Thinking it was a tour guide in fancy dress, the Americans complied, and as they were leaving, mentioned to the receptionist that their guide was very knowledgeable and passed their thanks on to his manager. You can only imagine the shock and confusion when they were told that they did not have any tour guides at the high house. I wonder how many visitors have had their own special tour from William Mason. Many of those travelling in and out of Stoke-on-Trent do so through Stoke train station. The station, which was described by original architect H.A. Hunt as based on the design of a robust Jacobean manor house, was built and operated by the North Staffordshire Railway Company in 1848. Each year, millions of people pass through its entranceway onto Winton Square, many unaware that they are all being watched over. This is because, in the middle of the central arch of the main entrance to the station, there is a carving of the Green Man, a pagan deity who is said to represent rebirth and the cycle of new growth that happens every year. He is often depicted as a man, sometimes smiling, his face surrounded or often made of leaves. The ghosts of Stoke train station are not often documented. However, I used to work at the small cafe located by the ticket office, and along with my colleagues, would often experience strange activity. Below the cafe are a series of basements that were used to store supplies needed for the daily running of the premises, mainly disposable cups, stirrers, that sort of thing. These were kept in the first basement room, which was a dark, 
dimly lit, but overall not bad place. The second and furthest basement room, however, was a different matter. This room was used for long-term storage of files or spare chairs and tables, and we didn't often go in there, mainly because we didn't need to. But for me, and many others, it was due to the oppressive atmosphere in the place. Something dwells in that room that doesn't want visitors of any sort. Other activity within the station involves people's names being called, only for the person to discover that there was nobody in the area or room the voice had come from, or if there was, nobody had shouted them or heard the phenomena themselves. One Sunday on a particularly quiet day, the cafe was empty. One of my colleagues was stood behind the counter watching the clock slowly tick by, when she noticed a gentleman walk through the ticket hall entrance, move silently through the cafe, and walk out onto the main station platform. There's nothing strange about that, she thought, as this often occurred. It wasn't until she mentioned this to myself and my supervisor a couple of moments later that we informed her that the door to the ticket hall wasn't used at weekends to prevent fare dodgers, and in fact, the door she had seen somebody stroll through was padlocked and secured from inside the cafe. For many years, the canals of Staffordshire were the lifeblood of the county, allowing for the easy transport of goods at a time when Britain's road and rail networks were in their infancy. Many people relied on the canals for their lives and livelihood. However, Harecastle Tunnel near Kidsgrove has for over 200 years become a place of death and ill omen. It is said that many years ago in the early years of the canals, a young lady was travelling from Liverpool to meet her husband in London, who had recently taken up work there. He had sent a guinea to her to enable her to pay for her transport, and she was carrying all the goods she owned with her in her trunks. After a long ride on a cart that was taking corn to the mill at Hardingswood, she stopped to take rest at the Canal Tavern, a lockside pub in Kidsgrove. She was trying to arrange further passage south by road, with no offers. Someone in the tavern suggested that she travel by canal barge, and although she was not very happy about the idea, she could find no other choice. The landlord agreed to watch over her luggage while she went to the wharf, and there she met three boatmen, who promised her they would give her transport to London on their barge. They wanted to go on that night, and she was reluctant. They convinced her that the passage through the tunnel was dark in day or night, so they may as well set off as soon as possible. She didn't like the idea too much, but because she could find no one else she accepted. She noticed then that they had all been drinking, and that may have been to do with the cargo they were carrying, which was wines and spirits. The boatman went back to the tavern with her to collect her luggage, and they took a pint of porter and set off with the lady due south via the Harecastle Tunnel. At the mouth of the tunnel, one of the boatmen took the pony up the track to Boat Horse Road, and the other two set off into the tunnel with the lady. The barge emerged at the other side carrying the boatman, but the lady never came out. In the hope that she had riches in her trunks, they had murdered her, and hid her body in the underground culvert to Golden Hill Colliery, known as Gilbert's Hole. In the search for her, she was found some days later in the tunnel, without her head. The boatmen were tried and executed for her murder, 
but it's been said over the years that the Kidsgrove Boggart has been heard wailing in and around the tunnel and along Boat Horse Road. This is the road that runs directly over the tunnel where the tow ponies used to walk when the barges were going through. Accounts of people hearing the Boggart go back as far as 1816, when an account can be seen in the journal of Hugh Bourne, the noted Methodist preacher. He writes of an event when he was in Torco the Hill at night, and was informed by locals that several people had been injured in the coal mine, and that the Kidsgrove Boggart had been very much about. Finally, our trip through haunted Staffordshire leads us to Shugborough Hall and its surrounding estate, located on the edge of Cannock Chase, between Stafford and Rugeley. Following the dissolution of the monasteries in 1540, the estate was purchased in 1624 by William Anson, an ancestor of the Earls of Lichfield, and remained in the family who built the hall as it stands today, until the 1960s. Now owned by the National Trust, the estate is a living museum, showcasing estate life, a kitchen garden, and a model farm that features many rare breeds of animal. Even the name Shugborough is steeped in the supernatural. The meaning comes from Shug, which is a devil or evil spirit, and Barrow, an ancient burial mound. Perhaps this is why the estate boasts one of the oldest yew trees in England, in order to ward off evil spirits. The estate's ghosts include Lady Harriet, who died in childbirth in the state bedroom. This room is well known for its chilly and uncanny atmosphere. A former housekeeper is also said to haunt the kitchens, and staff have heard the rustle of her skirts and seen her figure pass by the windows. The most fascinating aspect of Shugborough is the Shepherd's Monument. Built in the 1800s, the outer form of the monument is a portico featuring two columns. These support the main monument, which is decorated by a frieze depicting three laurel wreaths and two carvings of stone heads. One head shows a smiling bald-headed man. The other bears a likeness to the goat-horned Greek god, Pan. Inside the portico is an arch, which frames a relief fashioned by the Flemish sculptor Peter Sheemakers. The relief is a copy of the Poussin painting, Et in Arcadia Ego, and shows a woman and three men, two of whom are pointing to a tomb. On the tomb is carved the Latin text, Et in Arcadia Ego, which means, I am also in Arcadia. The carving displays a number of small alterations from the original painting, including the addition of an extra sarcophagus placed on top of the main tomb. Below the relief is a stone plaque displaying a ten-letter inscription. The inscription is O-U-O-S-V-A-V-V, which are placed above and between the letters D and M, and it has never been satisfactorily explained, and has even been called one of the world's top uncracked cipher texts. In 1982, the authors of the pseudo-historical Holy Blood and the Holy Grail suggested that Poussin was a member of the Priory of Sion, and that his Shepherds of Arcadia contained hidden meanings of great esoteric significance. The book makes a passing reference to the Shepherds' Monument and the inscription, 
and the fact it may allude to the location of the Holy Grail, but offers no solution to the puzzle. In 2003, Dan Brown copied many elements of Holy Blood and the Holy Grail in his best-selling novel The Da Vinci Code, but made no mention of the Shubra inscription. I do hope you've enjoyed our trip through haunted and paranormal Staffordshire. If this is a series you'd like to see more of, let me know in the comment section below, and also what county would you like to see me cover next? Make sure to like, share, comment and subscribe to the channel. Every time you do, it really, really helps. Also, thank you to Lisa Ray, Steffi Watts, Lefty Kim and Ghost City Shelton for being those who dwell below. Without you, this wouldn't be possible. So, until next time, sleep tight.